Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. This week we come to you from the Dolphin Bay Resort and Spa in San Luis Obispo. I should say it the right way. San Luis Obispo County. Otherwise, I'll be thrown out of town. California, uh, on the California Central Coast, a place that not a lot of people know about, but boy, is it amazing. You may have not heard the word Central Coast, but how about this? San Simeon. Does the Hearst Castle ring a bell? Or Cambria, Pismo Beach, uh, San Luis Obispo, of course, Paso Robles, great wineries there. 3,600 square miles. It's just an amazing location to be in that a lot of people just bypass. They don't realize it when they're going up Highway 1. And the cool thing is that this weekend, Sunset Magazine's doing their Savor the Central Coast event. It's a wild four-day event. And it's not just some, you know, sampling market. It's wine. It's food. It's tours. It's... it's um, Horseback riding, it's it's wine blending seminars. Yeah, that's the one I'll be at. Yeah, wine blending seminars, historic excursions, uh, uh, culinary showcases, getting out to where the growers are, getting up close and personal with the guys who actually produce the food, and uh, and it brings the whole community together. We'll talk about that uh, throughout the show. What people don't also realize, we're talking 3,600 square miles to cover here, and yet it's still a community, and the weather is great. Uh, it's 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 a climate that that allows great winemaking and great farming. And not to mention the surfers too. So everything you want is right here. And, and for those people who are lucky enough to stop here and not just go up the, on the interstate, you're in, you're in for a treat. One of the things you're gonna find here, and this is the wild part, one of the things you're gonna find here is this crazy place. I, I call it a crazy place because it's been crazy since 
I first saw it, um, the Madonna Inn. And it, it, there's no one way to describe this hotel because it's not a hotel. It's not, there's no one room that's like any other room. Every room has its own character, its own personality, its own history, crazy stuff that's happened there. Um, and joining me now is going to tell me all the secrets of the Madonna Inn, Clint Pierce. How are you, man? Great. Thanks for having me on, Peter. I mean, you're the president. You are Mr. Madonna. <laughs> well, I'm not, but I'm, uh, I'm married to one of his daughters. That'll do and it. And so that gives me a little uh, sort of um, peek at the inside of the family and the history and all that. It's really fun. But this place goes back to what, 1938? Well, 1938 uh, is when Alex started his construction yeah. company. He was born right out there on the army camp, and his uh, family ranch there until the, through eminent domain, they, they uh, moved him off, and then they came to town, and he started his construction business, went off to World War II, came back, kind of picked it up out of the ashes, what was left of it, and hit the Eisenhower highway boom, and really did well in that business. And So the, the first 12 rooms, right? The first there were in 1958, yeah. he, he started the first 12 rooms. In fact, they burned down uh, about two years after that. See, that's part of the history of the Madonna Inn, right? Because oh, yeah. crazy stuff. Now how many rooms do you have? We have 110 now. Wow. And each room, right? Uh, I'll tell you the room I remember. Don't get mad at me. The Bam Bam Room. Yeah. Um, is it still there? Yeah, well, it's the, oh, um, okay. it's the um, um, <laughs> rock bottom now. Oh, thank Why'd you change the name? <laughs> Why'd you change yeah, the name? And then Caveman. Well, you know, it's funny. We had a... Um, a Flintstone room also. I remember that. And Hanna-Barbera got a little upset because of trademark. And so that's when we changed that one to, um, to Caveman. But what happened to Bam Bam? I, I, over, over, the, over the years, I guess the name got I'm changed. I'm crestfallen. Okay. <laughs> but each room has its own design, personality, craziness, quirks. Absolutely. You know, th really, this was the imagination of uh, Alex and Phyllis Madonna, the, you know, the founders. And so it's kind of Swiss chalet uh, feeling. Uh, it's, it's also really wild, you know, like you say, every single room's different. They're all theme rooms. Some are completely built out of rock, uh, true authentic rock. That would have been the Flintstone room. Yep. <laughs> Yabba dabba do. Yeah. <laughs> I hope I'm not in trademark fringing right now. Uh, but it's tough to get a reservation there because especially on the weekends, everybody wants to come out and live out their fantasies in those rooms. You know, that is um, a fact on the weekends. It is really tough to get in. But if you make reservations ahead of time, you can you can pretty much get the room you want. And midweek, it's 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 uh, there's more room. And you sit on how many acres? We sit on over a thousand acres there. See, that's the other one that's tough to come across. That's a lot of space. Yeah, and you know one of the great things is we have uh, it's called Cerro San Luis. Um, some people call it Madonna Mountain. It's right there in our backyard, and so we have horseback riding that all over the mountain there, and uh, folks hike up there and mountain bike. It's just a great backyard for us. And how do you get involved in, in Savor the Central Coast? Well, I am involved in our local tourism industries. And um, uh, probably a year after Savor got going, uh, Madonna Inn jumped in. In fact, um, last year before last, we even had a rodeo adventure tour. So uh, we really get and in. How and many, how many injuries were reported? Well, we don't know of any, but, you know, <laughs> there probably were, were some uh, bruises and uh, pulled muscles. So you can come out there and get on a horse. Absolutely. Get on a horse, do si a little barrel si racing. Sign the waiver. Yeah, sign the yeah, waiver yeah. for sure. Okay, then you get on the horse. Yeah. See, my problem, every time I get on a horse, they usually give me a horse named Champ. You know you're in trouble then when you get a horse named Champ. <laughs> and, and Champ takes one look at me, turns around and goes back to the barn at 80 miles an hour because he knows I'm an idiot. Yeah, that's not fun. No, not fun. <laughs> but you have nicer horses. We have nicer horses, and they yeah. stay on a nice line. And Do you have a horse named Champ? Go out. No, I don't think we have one named oh, Champ. Oh, good. Do you have a horse named Bam Bam? <laughs> 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 Just checking. I don't know. Yeah. 
What's the most, other than the idiosyncratic design of each room, what's the, what's the biggest surprise people find when they, when they come to your hotel? You know, I think what they find, a lot of people come to us for novelty. They're, they're going to stay a night just to check it out. What's the craziest room? Uh, I think the craziest room is probably what's left. And what's left is what's <laughs> that's the left. Name of, that's the name of the room. That was the very last room that uh, Alex and Phyllis built, and it was what's left. It was the tile that was left over from all the other rooms. <laughs> it was the carpeting left over from all the other rooms. So obviously, we've, we've changed the carpet since then, but we've tried to keep well, it that in that was nice of you. really yeah. crazy random uh, style. So basically, if there's a lot of drinking involved, you're going to love this room. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> because it suddenly makes sense. Yeah, this great Central Coast wine. What's the one one room that people ask for more than any other room? Oh, it's Caveman. Caveman, our occupancy uh, annually is is in the high 90s on Caveman, maybe 97, 98%. So it's really hard to get in. But, you know, there's cancellations, so you can still get in there. Or injuries. Yeah, or injuries. <laughs> do people come dressed for that occasion? Uh, some do, yeah. They do. What, what, what would they be wearing? Well, people come, uh, some usually it's... Uh, it's is it Tarzan's loincloth time? Or? Well, not quite that much, but... I'm sure that behind closed doors, some, some things happen. Wow. I love it. Are these rooms soundproof, by the way? Pretty much. <laughs> Why did I know that? Solid Why? rock. Why did I know <laughs> solid rock? I'm sorry. We're in the caveman room. We can't come out right now. <laughs> sorry. Yabba dabba do. Clint Pierce from the Madonna Inn, man. Thanks. And, and can I still come back and horseback ride? Absolutely. Will you double check to make sure that Champ is not there? I'll make sure that you don't get Champ, even if uh, one shows up named Champ. We have clearance, Clarence. Roger, Roger. What's our vector, Victor? Now our radio clearance over. That's Clarence over. Over. Roger. Huh? This county is the number three wine-producing region in California, only surpassed by Sonoma and Napa, and most people don't know that. My next guest sort of knows that. He has a very good reason to know that. Uh, but like most of the guests on the show from San Luis Obispo, he's not from here. He's one of those outsiders, but he's been here 42 years. Uh, former football player, defensive tackle for the Nittany Lions, and Joe Paterno, uh, Gary Eberly, who's now a winemaker. How'd that happen? Oh, boy, Peter, it's a, it's a long story. Um, grew up in Pittsburgh area, uh, where all great football players come from. And, well, you uh, stop that right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, went to play for uh, Joe Paterno. Uh, I had a chance to go just about anywhere I wanted, but I wanted to play for Paterno. Uh, never knew exactly what I wanted to do. Went down to LSU, got a master's, and then I went down to Charity Hospital in New Orleans, which was LSU unknown. I was working on a doctorate in cellular genetics. One of my professors turned me on to wine, and I just had an epiphany. Like most defensive tackles. Yeah, yeah. Was, it's, it's pretty pretty common uh, road that we all follow. <laughs> and I said, you know, I don't want to be a geneticist. I want to be an alcoholic. So I transferred to uh, UC Davis and went through. Well, that's it. It's enology. Uh, that's enology on steroids. At, uh, especially at that time. Yeah. I mean, it was just about the only place. The only, only place you could get a doctorate in fermentation science yeah. at that time. So uh, I went uh, uh, through a doctoral program and uh, hadn't finished my dissertation. I was about uh, nine months away from finishing it. I thought I'd do it on the job, and I'm still about four months short of finishing it up. What about this region is so conducive to winemaking? Well, I, w I was very fortunate. One of my professors was uh, Dr. Omo uh, at Davis, and he and some of the other people were doing a, uh, for the soil science department and the enology department, a survey of San Luis Obispo County and digging soil, and he brought me down here on a couple of times. We dug holes in the ground, and he was just so excited about Paso, both the weather 
the soils, uh, everything. I mean, the, the terroir, and I'm still not sure exactly what that means, but it's sort of... <laughs> it sounds good. It's everything. Yeah. Uh, and he said that, uh, you know, Paso Robles would be the next great red wine producing region uh, in the state. And I've been to a couple of wineries there. You've got some great wineries in Paso Robles, more oh. than you can imagine. There are probably about 260 bonded wineries and about 40 virtual wineries. What's and, a virtual winery? A uh, virtual winery is a tasting room where they make wine someplace else at a co-op type thing. So that's like a retail outlet? Yeah. I got gotcha. you. But in your case, what particular wine are you doing? That, that's your favorite. I, I came to California and to Paso Robles to make Cabernet. Uh, I, I just... If you I, know what? I think Cabernet, I, I actually do think defensive tackle. Yeah. It's, it's a full-bodied wine. Yeah, and good-looking. Yeah. <laughs> We're back to that again. <laughs> but that's... that's and, and yeah, it's, it, it, to me, the, there is no, no red wine, in my opinion, that has more flavor, more depth of character, and evolves more in a glass than, than Cabernet does. I, I also, I like Syrah. I introduced that variety to the United States back in the early 70s. And at one point, you were making some wine for a couple of presidents. Uh, President Reagan, particularly, uh, he took uh, my wine, the first wine that ever had a Paso Robles appellation on it, to China. Uh, I'm not sure that's good because I don't know that he'd take good wine to the communists, but. Uh, that was uh, he was showcasing thing. he was showcasing yeah. and, and and we always knew when president reagan was coming out west because they would always call and get some of that wine for the western white house amazing so, and also president bush yes president bush also and we were we're doing a thing with uh, for president bush uh, uh 41 right now down in texas what makes the the region so different though I think more so than anything else, uh, one is the very low humidity during the growing season. Uh, Vitus vinifera is, is not a European grape. It's a, a Middle Eastern grape. It's already evolved over a couple of million years. And uh, it does not like humidity during the growing season. The other is the extreme uh, diurnal change. Uh, 40 degrees minimum change from high to low, and 50 degrees is more normal. Uh, we'll be 95 during the day, and it'll drop down to 50 at But isn't, night. isn't that a challenge for you? No. It's, it's, I mean, or it's, it, it's beneficial then? Oh, it's great. That's exactly what the vines want. Riding along in my automobile My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go I spent many, many years in Madison, Wisconsin. I went to school there. And Madison, I think, distinguishes itself, among other things, of having a great farmer's market on the weekends around the state capitol and the state square. Guess what? They do it here on the Central Coast as well. And joining me now, Peter Janke, the, 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 the director of the Farmer's Market Association of San Luis Obispo County. You don't just have one farmer's market, Peter. you got about five, don't you? Well, actually, there are 20 farmers markets in the county. Wow. And we operate, our association operates just five. Just five. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, one of the things that's, that's interesting to me is that if you take a look at the farmers market, if you look at the farmers market in, in Wisconsin, you have a situation in which they have a rule, which I think is a great rule. One of the rules that they have is if you're going to be an exhibitor at the farmers market, you actually have to be the farmer. You know, because when you go to buy something there, you're actually talking to the guy who grew it or who made it. 
Um, and it, it sparks an amazingly interesting and educational conversation. Plus, you come back because you want to talk to the guy or the woman because they know what they're talking about. They made that cheese or they, or they grew that fruit, right? Well, that's exactly. In fact, uh, state regulations require that as a certified farmer's market, the only person that can sell the product is the farmer themselves. Retail is absolutely prohibited. I love that. Plus, you, know, you talk about retail. When we talk about farm-to-table at restaurants, the cool thing about that these days is you'll see the chefs in the restaurant going to the farmer's market. Oh, we have actually a number of people from some of our higher-end <clears throat> farmer's markets. And so I would say this is that uh, we know of one of them group of uh, Novo Restaurant, for example. And, and that uh, they come to the farmer's markets about four times a week. I would say this is that each time they're spending between $500 and $1,000 for each time they're at a given market, and that's at least uh, four or five markets a week. So basically the advice you're giving me is get there before they get there. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, we allow for the restaurants to shop whenever they get there. Right? I know, yeah, I right, know. Right, right. But what will you find at that market that you won't find anywhere else? I think that you've, uh, <clears throat> um, anything else is, is that um, we are really more than just, say, like going to a grocery store. And as you sort of indicated from Madison, this is that you're talking with people. You're talking about the farmer who actually grew the product. Actually, you see the kids grow up over the years. And I would say this is that we have probably most of our farmers have been with us for over 25 years. And for people who are visiting San Luis Obispo and the farmer's markets, this is the one issue I have with the Madison one that I don't like, Right. Because I'm not living in Madison now. I'm living both in New York and Los Angeles, right? I'm not living in San Luis Obispo. But if I go to the farmer's market and I see something that I like there, right, and I go, hey, guys, do you ship? Mm. Most of the guys in Madison go, no, we don't do that. Right. But wait a minute. If you want people to come visit and they're not from here, they can't necessarily, you know, lug the, you know, the pork belly back, you know. <laughs> well, the, Tell me some of your guys ship. Please. Well, yes, they do. Okay, good. Fact, I feel better. Uh, several of them have websites where you can um, <clears throat> shop, online. Like, shop online, um, and you bet. And so, but most for the most part, though, is that the whole idea of the farmers market is to have it so that it is, shall we say, free. Uh, it's not something that's packaged and right. built to ship. For example, you don't want to try to ship a whole bunch of ripe tomatoes. No, that would be difficult. Exactly, yeah. and, and messy. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is, when you take a look at this, in, in Wisconsin, they only do it, obviously, because the winter is so harsh. They only do it, let's say, between March and November. Uh, here, do they, what do they do it, Saturdays and Sundays? or? Oh, okay, so uh, we have farmer's markets so, uh, Thursday at Morro Bay, Thursday afternoon. We have a farmer's market, uh, the farmer's section of what we have, a huge street fair in Thursday night. There you go, keep that going. This is flight 372 on SWA. The flight attendants on board serving you today. Teresa in the middle, David in the back. My name is David, and I'm here to tell you that. Shortly after takeoff, first things first, there's soft drinks and coffee to quench your thirst. But if you want another kind of drink, then just holler. Alcoholic beverages will be $4. If a monster energy drink is your plan, that'll be $3. And you get the whole can. We won't take your cash. You got to pay for Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial.
My next guest, I have a little surprise for him because when you talk about San Luis Obispo County, of course, that involves San Simeon, it involves the Hearst Castle, and you got to always want to know, you know, the secret history of it because it's such an amazing building and what's inside is so amazing. I actually have a William Randolph Hearst story to share with you because my grandfather was the, like the real star reporter for William Randolph Hearst. And so I grew up hearing all the stories of, of the crazy stuff that used to go on. And, and this goes back to the days of the front page. There was a very, very, uh, just a notorious murderer on the loose that escaped in Los Angeles. And they found him up in Oregon. They were going to bring him down by train to stand trial in Los Angeles. And the district attorney announced it would be a whistle-stop train, which means it would make no stops because they didn't want anybody touching this guy. And that uh, reporters could go, but they couldn't file their stories. And William Randolph first said to my grandfather, I want to beat out everybody. you got to get that story. So you got to get the scoop. And so my grandfather went and got 40 silver dollars, rubber bands. And he had his typewriter with him, an old manual, and got on that train. And remember, this train's not stopping. But Mr. Hurst had all the newspapers up and down the coast of California. So my grandfather, before he ever got on the train, made sure that all the newspaper boys knew when that train was going to be zipping by that station. And he'd write the story as he, as he interviewed the murderer, right? And as it came by the station, he tied it around the silver dollar and threw it out the window. The newspaper boys grabbed it. By the time they got to Los Angeles, there were eight editions ahead of everybody else in the days when newspapers had editions. The person who might know a little bit about that is my next guest, the chief of museum interpretation from the Hearst Castle, Ty Smith. How are you, man? Just fine. Thank you for having me. Did you like that story? Yes. It, uh, William Randolph Hearst was an innovator in media and and a manipulator. And a manipulator. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Shall we discuss the Spanish-American War? Sure. <laughs> Tell me about that. Well, you know, one of the things that I have the pleasure of doing is presenting what was once one man's private home is now the People's Museum. Right. And so we call it Hearst Castle, but we delve into a history that's very place-centric. But certainly, uh, that's a big part of the story, and people come up, and, you know, William Randolph Hearst used to be a household name, and you say the name Hearst, and you get less and less recognition, but certainly there are many people who uh, understand the origins of William Randolph Hearst and his media empire. And yeah, yellow journalism is smack dab right in the middle of that. Spanish-American War. <laughs> Spanish-American War. It was the war he wanted. It was the war he wanted. <laughs> well, and, and not just William Randolph Hearst, but that the media wanted. And his yeah. competition with Pulitzer in New York certainly had a lot to do with that. It was a, it was, newspapers are a numbers game. Oh, sure. Circulation. Still is. <laughs> Unfortunately, the numbers aren't so good anymore. But, <laughs> but you know, it's not just the newspaper history or the media history. It's the architectural history right, of, that, right. of that castle. Right. Because this guy would find stuff and ship it back from all over the world. Well, and it represents a unique time in American history. And certainly we think of the 1930s and we think of the Great Depression. That's a part of the story. But by and large, the United States was doing fairly well, um, certainly in the 1920s, uh, leading up to the Great Depression. And what was happening worldwide, though, was an economic collapse. And so European art was following American money. Uh, and Europeans were uh, also coming to the United States looking for right. a better life. So you don't really have Hearst Castle, uh, as you see it today, without um, the kind of stars aligning in just the right way, historically speaking, right. with all of that European art flooding the American art market. And Hearst was really able to take advantage of that. You get the impression that William Randolph Hearst was driving around Europe in a big truck going loaded up 
He had, he had other people doing it for him. Well, it, it was already happening. Yeah. And so he would ha have to go no further than a dealer in New York or an auction house in New York or San Francisco or Los Angeles to buy those things and acquire those things. They were already flooding the American art market. And, and William Randolph Hearst wasn't the only one collecting. And the cool thing about Savor of the Central Coast right now is you can get all the wine, get all the food, and still get out to San Simeon and see the gas. Sure. You should. Oh, I know. But I want to go during the middle of the week, not the weekends. Right. Well, um, this, this is our, uh, we call them shoulder seasons. Yeah. So we get the, most of our visitation during the summer, especially right. August. Oh, no. Everybody comes in. Listen, September, October are magic months because you don't have the crowds. And it's our summer, really. People yeah. don't realize they come from all over. And in June and July, we get what's called the June gloom. And they expect California surf and sun. It's called the marine layer. <laughs> right. They get the, <laughs> but they get the marine layer. So really what, what we're seeing is the Central Coast summer, September and October. So the good news is now's the time. Now is the time. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. So many things in the Central Coast that people don't know about, uh, and of course the entire San Luis Obispo County is huge, and encompasses so many small communities of which there's a bigger community as well. Everybody seems to know everybody else, but there's such great history here. You go back to the year 1850 when it was established as a as a county, and probably the oldest county, one of the oldest counties in the state of California. Where do you want to know about what goes on here, about what happened here, and what uh, basically shaped this area? Well, of course, you go to the one person who knows the answer. All of that, the curator of the Historical Center of the San Luis Obispo County uh, Museum, really. And that's uh, Eva Olds. How are you? I'm well, thanks, Peter. And thanks so much for having me. We're thrilled to have you on the Central Coast. I'm thrilled to be here on the Central Coast. What I was amazed about, about, about your museum, is that you've got 3.8 million objects. To be honest, we don't know exactly how many objects we have. <laughs> but it's lots. It's lots. It's definitely in the hundreds of thousands. Well, somebody told me 3.8 million, so they must have been drinking wine. Okay. Or maybe they've seen our warehouse. So we go back to 1850. I mean, you guys have been collecting since then. Well, we've been collecting since 1955. Right, but you've been collecting stuff that dates back before oh, then. Oh, well before 1850. Right. Yeah. So tell me the stuff that I'm going to find there. Well, what you'll find on display at the museum at the moment um, is an exhibition about Phoebe Apperson Hearst. We uh, also have... Well, wait, let's let's oh, go back sure. to that. Sure. Related to, of course, William Randolph Hearst. Yes. And many people say, oh, Phoebe, where does she fit in? We thought he was dating Marion Davies. Phoebe was his mother. Really? Yes. See, I remember the Marion Davies story. There's a, there's a house in Bel Air in California. When he was dating Marion Davies, it was a house that was so big in Bel Air, it had a moat. Oh, my goodness. Okay? And in fact, right now, the state of California does not allow the current owner to fill the moat because of, because of the water conditions. I mean, that's that much water. But the story goes, and by the way, it was confirmed that William Randolph Hearst came home one day and found Marion Davis in the moat in a gondola kissing Charlie Chaplin, and he <laughs> shot him. He winged him. Oh, dear. Yeah. But, but Phoebe was the mother who probably grounded him for that. Yeah. Well, Phoebe was the mother, and throughout her life, she was repeatedly dismayed by her son's love of show business. And his, This did not fit her style. Not exactly. She had been raised in the Ozarks, uh, or near the Ozarks, in Franklin County, Missouri, and she um, was brought up by a not very wealthy but extremely educated family. Phoebe was their oldest child and the only child for almost a decade, and so her father trained her as though she were a boy. 
boy. He taught her business and math in addition to writing, and she became a school teacher. And she wore the pants in the family pretty soon. She did. She married George Hurst, who was 20 years her senior in 1862, in the middle of the Civil War. Um, and very quickly, they moved from um, Franklin County, where they'd both been born and raised, back to San Francisco, where William Randolph Hearst was born a year later. Wow. George Hurst had already made a small fortune in mining, which he promptly lost, and then made some more and lost some more. It wasn't until 1878 that the family became pretty much one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest, family in the entire country. Uh, William Randolph Hearst built that castle from, from Marion. Well, yes and no. There are uh, many people that say he built it for Phoebe. He began really? building in 1919, and Julia Morgan was his mother's protege architect. She had already had Julia build her a castle, which was, well, this was one of her castles. Um, she built a castle in Pleasanton, California, which she named the Hacienda del Pozo de Verona, which was named after the wellhead that her son brought her back from Italy and that stood in the center of its courtyard. But Julia Morgan uh, revamped that house and expanded it uh, vastly. But when um, Phoebe died, that's when W.R. inherited the money, and he was able to begin building his own La Cuesta and Cantata, the enchanted castle on the hill that we have here in San Luis Obispo today. Amazing. And how many people visit that? That's in the millions. Yeah. Yes, it's that. probably one of the biggest tourist attractions in California. And it's also a remarkable art museum, which many people don't know. There's a new director at Hearst Castle, uh, recently appointed, named Mary Lovkoff, who is a fantastic art historian. And she's bringing new light to the important art treasures that are housed in San Simeon. Well, the one thing you can talk about William Randolph Hearst, he loved to travel and he, brought it, he bought whatever he saw when he traveled and brought it back. He did. And he also, um, he was a client of a very important art dealer named Duveen, who brought him a lot of treasures from around the world that he didn't even, didn't even have to travel for. He just went out there and sourced it for him. Yes. But, you know, who taught him how to collect art was his mom. There we go. We're back to feet. Yes. So in that collection you have now, mm -hmm. right, what's the most surprising exhibit? Of the Phoebe Hearst yeah. items, yeah. I would say the most surprising thing to me was the breadth of her interest. She was not just collecting, um, you know, old Renaissance ceilings or old masters' paintings. She was collecting ethnographic textiles, and she was excavating tombs in Egypt. She wrote a postcard to Oren Peck, the California portraitist. I am leaning over this open tomb, looking down, and they're sort of holding me up over it. So she was, she, everything that she did and everything that she collected, she was directly involved in. Why was her legacy forgotten for so long? You know, that's an excellent question, one that I ask myself every day since I learned about Phoebe Hurst about a year and a half ago. Um, I think in part because she gave so freely of herself, um, not just to promote causes, but to actually invest in them. And so her mode of philanthropy was not just to give money, but to give freely of her time, of her talent, and to inspire other people to take on the work that she was supporting. She wanted to empower people, not just support them. And so she really gave away the power to continue her work. And it has continued. Her work has not been forgotten, but the people who've taken it on have done so, so wholeheartedly that she is not always remembered as the founder. Now, this is the weekend of Savor the Central Coast, but as part of that, you can still go see the exhibit. Absolutely. And I also urge you to see Hearst Castle. The, um, the exhibit's in San Luis Obispo proper, and Hearst Castle's about an hour drive north, but it's Simeon, a gorgeous yeah. drive. It is. And admission? Admission to the History Center Museum is free. We do suggest that you make a donation, but you don't have to. 
you know, that's the proper way to do it, you know? Yes, we, we like to welcome everybody. Uh, price should not be um, a bar to enjoying our community's culture and to understanding where we all came from. Then how are you supported? We are supported in part by the County of San Luis Obispo, which is our largest donor. They provide about a third of our annual budget. We function as, um, in effect, as the county's history department. And the rest of our money comes from private donations and public grants. And the gift shop. And the gift shop. We have a fantastic <laughs> bookstore. If I you're curious it. about the Central Coast, please come to our bookstore. We have every book you can imagine about. Section 171, contact the park. Contact Now let's get back to the to the subject at hand because here we are in San, in San Luis Obispo in the middle of Savor the Central Coast. Somebody who knows a little bit about that, an author of Eating Up the West Coast, as opposed to any other coast, the best road trips, recipes, and restaurants from California to Washington. But we'll we'll concentrate here on the Central Coast. Bridget Benz. Hi, Bridget. Hi, Peter. It's great to be here with you. And you're involved in, in Savor, aren't you? I am. I'm very involved. In fact, sometimes it shocks me. <laughs> How are you involved? <laughs> Well, let's see. On Thursday, I will be handing out 1,200 bites of my fabulous Dungeness macaroni and cheese to everybody at the Strings of Sunset opening ceremony. Would it be a four-cheese Dungeness macaroni and cheese? The more cheese, the better. Better. Oh, my. And do you torch <laughs> the top of it a little bit? Absolutely. A little oh, breadcrumb. Okay. And the crab is on the top, too. So you get a big bite of crab with your first. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah that's scary. <laughs> and how much cream is used in there? Quite a lot. Quite a lot. Yeah. Uh, you know. Okay, yeah. fine. All right, so that's one thing you're doing. <laughs> Keep going. Uh, let's see. Then I will be I will be backing up my husband on Friday night at the cocktail shootout at the Paso Robles Inn. He is uh, also known as Paso Wine Man, and he's judging a cocktail competition at Paso Robles Inn. And then I'm demonstrating a recipe on Saturday at the main event out at Santa Margarita Ranch on um, that Saturday. And what's the recipe? That is a, there's cheese involved. I'm, I'm, I'm loving it. Go ahead. <laughs> What's the big surprise? It's a grilled sourdough cheese sandwich with caramelized onions. That's, you know, can I tell you something? <laughs> I'm not a meat eater. I haven't had meat in, in seven years. My favorite sandwich to order is a smoked Gouda grilled cheese sandwich with caramelized mm. onions. Well, this this is gonna you're gonna love this. It's a Toma sheep's cheese, which I like, similar in texture to Gouda, and that came from one of the 42 restaurants in this sunset eating up the West Coast. Sides, why is it called Sides Hardware and Shoes down in Los Olivos? But it's a <laughs> darn good sandwich. Wow, that's it, in sourdough. It's a sourdough bread. Absolutely, it's the only way you do it. Yeah, or, or actually, you could do rye. You could do rye. Yes, I think rye would be nice, actually. A little yeah. nutty thing there. So when we talk about this event, I mean, it's, it's a big deal because it's, it's four days. It just doesn't stop. Uh, there's winemaking and, as you said, lots of cheese, right? <laughs> uh, what's the biggest surprise to you about what's being offered? The surprise to me is that we have a world-class event like this in my backyard. And when I moved here five years ago— From I, where? Well, I was um, five years in upstate New York, which I, I try to forget. It, it was not a great success. but You I did... froze your... Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. uh -huh. 
<laughs> and I didn't expect Paso Robles and the Central Coast to so quickly um, jump to this level where we could have an event like this and have so many thousands of people attend, enjoy, get to know the wine, get to know the food, go on all these crazy adventure tours. Well, the thing about the wine is, I mean, what's new, what's actually news to me is that you're the third largest wine-producing region in California behind Napa and Sonoma. People don't get that. We are, and what's different about us, I like to call us the non-Napa, or I also say— How about Napa without the attitude? Well, yes, you can say that. I if just I, did. If I say it, I, I might get did. in trouble. Good. Okay, okay you go ahead. <laughs> I also call it Tuscany with cowboys, and I don't mean just the kind of cowboys that, that ride horses. I mean cowboy winemakers. And because people here, as opposed to some of the northern regions, feel free to just do whatever they want to. And the results are surprising, fun, excellent, questionable. Uh, it runs the gamut. Cowboy winemakers. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Hop along Pinot. <laughs> no? Okay. Love it. I love it. And... How many people are coming to this thing? Yeah, I, I do not know that, actually. Well, That's you have one to know thing. something because you're making a lot of macaroni and cheese. Well, I know that there are at, over 1,000 at, um, at the opening event, the, which strings at, at sunset. Um, I don't know, actually. I feel very underprepared. But there are many, many, many people, and it gets bigger every year. I think this is the sixth year. I, uh, I ran the California Grown stage in the fourth year as the, what the is MC. That? That's the stage where all of the cooks, chefs, caterers, et cetera, come and do demonstrations using all of the bounty of the county. And believe me, there's a lot the of bounty. bounty of the county. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Okay, I love that. And the biggest surprise dish this year? Surprise dish. Um, or surprise wine. Well, Speaking I, of cowboy winemakers. One thing I'd like to, to just mention, the surprise to me, is how many young winemakers we have that are that have their, their day job is making wine for a, an established winery, and yet they have their own label as their passion, their night job. So limited production? Very limited production. And when you try to go along, and I mean, there are going to be 100 winemakers each offering two to three wines. And so you, obviously you're not going to taste all of those. That would be a bad idea. Right. And what I suggest to people is choose a style or better yet, choose one of those really offbeat, young, passionate winemakers because you're not going to encounter a crowd of a million people trying to get through to him. And buy an extra bottle because it may not be around next week. Well, that's true, but the good ones will be. Just about every city in the world now has figured out food is a good idea. They figured out wine is a good idea. Let's pair them and have a festival. I mean, I'm sure somewhere in the trenches of, of Camden, New Jersey, they're having a food and wine festival somewhere. But the bottom line is some are better than others, and some celebrate the region better than others. And here we are on the central coast of California. You couldn't have a better location if you want to look at, at farmers and growers, winemakers. Um, I think what? The Central Coast is the third largest wine-producing uh, state, place in the, in the state of California or, or in the West. I mean, it's a pretty big deal. And joining me now, somebody who knows a lot about this Savor Fair, this Savor Festival, Michelle Metter, how are you? I'm well, thank you. You're a San Diego girl. I am a San Diego girl, but, you know, I'm, I'm trying to live like a local myself, you know, and, and immersing myself in all things San Luis Obispo County and loving it out here. What's, what's to like? 
Oh, what isn't to like? I mean, you know, just the, the weather alone is just so much to appreciate. But in the span of, of a 20-minute drive, you go from being in a beautiful coastal setting to be in the heart of wine country. It's just a magnificent area. The people are incredible. The food's dynamic. It's just it's an incredible region. But, you know, people get stereotyped or regions get stereotyped. And the, and the issue that happens is people know about Monterey. They know about Napa. They don't know that much about the Central Coast yet. You think so, really? Yeah, yeah I do. Yeah. I mean, uh, most of the media hasn't figured it out yet. Yeah, well, and it's it, I think it's really just one of those untapped um, stories for people who are looking for really great immersive um, experiences just from adventure, food, wine, culture. There's so much that's offered here within the county that, um, you know, you, you can come in inside of one day, have so many different varied topographical experiences. It's just really incredible. And so what does Saver do to sort of bring the community together yeah it's it's really interesting because with savor the central coast it's it's pretty unique in terms of what's offered from the national food and wine festival landscape it's different from a lot of different standpoints um, the first being obviously that sunset magazine really is heavily invested in this in this region they come in and they really try to help bring the California lifestyle to life within San Luis Obispo County and the the unique aspect of that in conjunction with what sunset does is is this really hands-on immersive experience where you get to go out within the um, different cities and have these very localized experiences that give you a true flavor of, of what this county has to offer. When you say immersive, I mean, does that mean it's participatory? Participatory, yeah. I mean, you uh, we have these incredible experiences where you can literally go and roam in the fields with Clydesdale horses or go and understand what it's like to... Is it like slow motion movie? I'm kind of, <laughs> kind of roaming in the field at the end, I get to kiss the horse? Is that... No, no. Well, I don't, I, if you want, <laughs> sure. Uh, well, you know, I mean, it's, it, it, there, there's, there's some, there's See, so well, many so, But just for starters, I mean, you don't necessarily equate Clydesdale horses with the central coast of California. You don't, yeah. And and I, I you know, in, in full disclosure, before we really had an opportunity to work very closely with this community, I don't know that I did either. You know, you you I think people understand and appreciate what this region is doing from a wine standpoint, but they don't necessarily understand all of the adventure aspects that then bridge this gap between food, wine, lifestyle, culture. There's really just so much here. So what was the biggest surprise for you? Um, you know, I mean, I, I really think just understanding the proximity um, that that um, an individual can have inside of a small distance. I mean, the county is quite large, but, you know, the historical aspect with Hearst Castle, um, the culinary scene with all of these amazing local chefs, and then just, you know, the, the bounty that's offered throughout the county. I think that understanding, um, you know, from a farmer purveyor aspect, there's so much located within such a small area. I think that that was very enlightening for us. I mean, Hearst Castle is one thing people sort of expect that. They do. But then there's, there's, there's surprises around it. Yeah, yeah, there really are. And, uh, you know, the to, to be able, and this is one of the adventure tours that we're doing with Saver, and I think, again, kind of going back to your earlier question, that's one of the really unique things about this particular event and festival is all of these adventure tours. And it's a four-day event. It's a four-day event. And two full days are packed with adventure tours, Hearst Castle being one of them where you... Followed by drinking? Of, well, it's maybe a, it is a food and wine festival so of course there has I'm to be I'm just asking. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There has to be some libation in there. You know, that's that's definitely a part of what we do. But you do the adventure first. 
or in conjunction with sometimes. Uh -oh. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and you know, the region too is is really known, um, and I think there's a, a growing emergence for handcrafted cocktails in the area. So one of our adventure tours is over at La Cosecha in Paso Robles with refined. By the way, Paso Robles has some amazing wineries. The, oh, incredible Unreal. wineries. I, I, you know, I, I you can't quote me on this exactly, but I think there are a little over 300 wineries just in Paso Robles alone and growing daily. I, I really feel like this is... And these are small product. These are small production wineries. They are a lot of them are small production, but you know you do have some larger wineries yeah. as well. Um, but but small production, a lot of family owned um, boutique wineries that really are producing some of the best wines in the country. It's it's an incredible wine growing region. But you know just right here in San Luis Obispo and Pismo Beach, there are great wineries as well. So not to be overshadowed. Going the wrong way. He says we're going the wrong way. Oh, he's drunk. How do he know where we're going? Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come on and fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. Come fly with me, let's float down to Peru. You know I talk about volunteer vacations all the time, and we've mentioned the Surfrider Foundation on a number of our shows because they do such great work in so many of the coastal communities up and down the coast. And uh, my next guest I really look forward to meeting because she goes beyond just beach cleanup, way beyond beach cleanup. She's figured out an amazing thing to do with beach trash. And uh, her name is Sarah Bellum. Sarah, how are you? I'm great, Peter. How are you? Now, tell everybody how you got here today. Well, I run the Rise Above Plastics program for San Luis Obispo chapter of the Surfrider Foundation. Right. But what transported you here today? My bicycle. And, and how is your bicycle uh, constructed? It is crocheted out of 188 upcycled plastic bags. That you found on the beach. That I found on the beach. <laughs> so the good news is that you were able to do that. The bad news is that the bags were on the beach to begin with. Yes, exactly. How long did it take you to do the bike? It took me about three months. <laughs> and you crocheted the bike? Yes. And it's a sturdy bike? It's totally sturdy, totally functional. It's my one mode of transportation. But it's now also a showpiece to let people know that there's an afterlife for, for, for trash. Yes. And what else are you making out of all this recycled garbage on the beach? Um, I make anything from trash mosaics to bikinis. Bikinis? Any, yeah. Wait a second. They lift, <laughs> they lift and support. No, I mean, but, but the bottom line is how much trash is there on the beach right now? Well, right now in the ocean, um, it's more like a plastic soup in the ocean. We know about that plastic soup. The, yes. Yeah, the, the, they're floating out there in the Pacific. Yes, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. And yes. There's actually five gyres where um, the plastic accumulates. And people need to know, these are not just gyres that are on the surface. They're a little bit below the surface. Yeah, so plastic um, does not biodegrade. It photodegrades, which means it breaks up into smaller and smaller pieces without ever going away. And right now, the plastic to plankton ratio in the ocean is six to one. That's scary. It is very scary. <laughs> I remember doing a piece once on Midway Island in the Pacific. And when we got there, you know, Midway is known for a number of things historically as the largest battle of naval history and everything else. But it's also the home of thousands of goonie birds. Mm -hmm. And watching a goonie bird try to take off is the, one of the most comical things you can see. But what's not so funny 
is when you see a, a dead guinea bird washed up on the beach and its carcass split open, and what do you think you find in that carcass? All the discarded plastic uh, cigarette lighters mm-hmm. that these birds will ingest when they're in the ocean. They can't digest them, and they just die. That's all that plastic. Yes, and those images are and the six pack holders very hard. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. The images are very hard to see if you see a dead bird and plastic oozing out of its gut. And so, I wanted to try to shift that um, and bring awareness in a fun way, so people can see the bikinis or the art, and they see. Um, and you sell these. I do sell them. And the profits go to. Half of the profits go to Surfighter Foundation, but I'm not really trying to um, sell and make money. I'm really just trying to raise awareness of and course. bring attention to the issue. So one of the things that Surfrider Foundation does, obviously, are the beach cleanup programs. Yes. And anybody coming here to the Central Coast can get involved. How do you do that? You can visit us at slo.surfrider.org, and we have all of our events on the website. And the cool thing is you're getting outdoors you're going to get out in the environment. You're going to get out on the beach. You're going to meet people like Sarah. Mm-hmm. Maybe you'll learn how to crochet a bicycle if you have about how many days to do that? <laughs> <laughs> Three months. Three months. But the point is that, that you creatively figured out a way to do that. That, to me, is amazing. Thank you. Yeah. So, okay, bicycle, bikinis. Mm-hmm. What else? Um, mosaics, bags, so, hair clips, earrings. <laughs> now, okay, the earrings that you're wearing today, made from? Um, upcycled Tribune bags. So the technically plastic bags are banned in the county of San Luis Obispo, but it's really only a certain type of bag. So bags without handles or bags of a certain thickness aren't banned. And a lot of bags that we find on the beach are the bags that go over um, newspapers or the plastic produce bags. Got it. So the fact that the plastic bags are banned doesn't stop them from washing up on the beach. Exactly. We really need to go to the source of the problem, and that is manufacturers producing uh, material that does not break down in nature. I got it. The website again? Slowslo.surfrider.org, or you can visit me at my website, which is sarahbellums.com. Should there be a rapid change in cabin pressure, oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat, free of charge. And to start the flow of oxygen, pay your flight attendant $75.63. My mother, God rest her soul. My next guest, I already liked the guy because he grew up wanting to be a firefighter, because I am a firefighter, and we, oh. had, and we actually had the San Luis Obispo County fire chief on earlier in the show. Really? Oh, yeah. Um, I but, did not get very far into firefighting at all. No. And how many, how many kitchen fires have you caused? Uh, I've put out a couple. Okay. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> I don't Jake, want to talk about the ones I've caused. That's Jacob Moss, the executive chef here at the Lido Restaurant at Dolphin Bay Resort. Uh, no firefighting, huh? No. I, I started, I only lasted about a year in the fire science classes. But uh, at that same time, I was washing dishes, and I just I loved being in the kitchen. Where was that? Uh, that was actually up in Northern California in Chico. Yeah, you can't get more northern than Chico. No, not really. Exactly. Yeah. Until you decided to head south and come here. But where were you before here? Uh, well, I actually grew up here on the Central Coast. So you've come home. Yes. Uh, I, came, uh, I moved back about five years ago to be closer to my uh, parents and grandparents. I 
originally left the Central Coast to go up to Chico to become a firefighter. I uh, washed dishes. I prep cooked, line cooked. I was a kitchen manager. After I did that for about two years in different restaurants, I decided I want to go to culinary school, get a formal education. You went to Italy? I actually, yes. I, I finished my culinary school in uh, Florence, Italy uh, for about tough, four months tough. as an unpaid intern. But, so can uh, you repeat after me? Gelato. Gelato. Thank you. Just moving on. Yeah, yeah parlo un po' italiano. <laughs> but not very much anymore. And uh, so I went to Le Cordon Bleu in Pasadena, and I spent a year and a half there and finished that with a uh, with an internship in Florence. Right, and then there's some Japanese influence running around too. I was the uh, the sous chef, and then um, one of the head chefs of restaurant up in uh, Chico called the Raw Bar, and we did sushi and a lot of Asian uh, inspired food. And have you brought that down with you here? I definitely use a lot of Japanese uh, influences in, in the cooking that I do here. So what would you say is the most Japanese-influenced dish you've got on the menu? Right now, I'd go with the uh, salmon crudo. Uh, so while crudo is not a, a technically a, a Japanese word, it's um, a salmon that I cure, uh, sugar, salt, lemon zest, lime zest, orange zest. It's cured for about 45 minutes and then rinsed clean. And then we slice it super paper thin. Um, it's served with... Uh, Blackberry puree and fresh blackberries. Now, nobody would ever think, at least I don't, that you could pair blackberries with salmon. Yeah, but I think the uh, the sort of tartness of the um, of the berries really cuts through the richness of the salmon nicely. Wow. And then those Fresno chilies give it just a little bit of heat for the uh, the spice lovers. Right. I could also order it without the chilies. You could, absolutely. Okay, just double-checking. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Now, I always ask Jeff this question, so I'm going to ask it to you, too. When you started the restaurant here, what's the one thing you put on the menu that you thought, man, everybody's going to love this, and it tanked? And then what's the one thing you put on the menu saying, who's going to ever order this, and they can't get enough of it? Well, that's a, that's a really, that is a really, really good question. That's why I have a radio show. Yeah, yeah. You're, yeah. you got good, lots of good okay. questions. Well, one thing that I was a little hesitant about, but I definitely wanted to try, was uh, veal sweetbreads. And they, um, actually, this is... Not an answer to your question, but they did about how I thought they would do, which was not very well. In the central coast of California, I would think they would have tanked. Yeah. they. I mean, they didn't tank, but they were a hard sell. Servers had a hard time selling them to guests. And um, of So course, basically all the waiters who work for you at the end of the evening say, what's for dinner? Uh, yeah. We're going to have the sweet breads. We're having the sweet breads. Well, yeah. and I you know, had to go over them several times. When people order that, you have to make sure they don't think it's like a sweet piece of bread. Because um, you they get really? that occasional really? guest yeah, that had that, that misconception. Yeah, that, there's something that's going to get 86 out of the kitchen. Yeah. yeah. Um, I would say on this current menu, lamb surprisingly has done really, really well. Lamb is usually fairly hit or miss. People either love lamb or they don't like it. Um, and on this menu, the lamb has been uh, one of our most popular selling entrees. And are you doing it differently? It's a uh, roasted rack of lamb. It's Colorado domestic lamb. Um, and uh, I just... Uh, I. Um, Roast it. It's served over a cauliflower and um, potato gratin with some grilled asparagus. That and, sounds pretty good. And then we're doing a pomegranate mint jelly on the side. Of course. You I've do. never been a big fan of the mint jelly with lamb, although any time I've ever served lamb, we get we get the request for it. So I thought this would be an opportunity to do sort of a fun and different version of a, a mint jelly. And here we are in the middle of Savor the Central Coast. I mean, everything is food and wine. Oh, absolutely. Right. What's your biggest selling wine type? Um, I would say Pinot. 
our our uh, Pinot Noir is definitely um, what our list is kind of geared around. Although we do have one of the largest wine lists on the Central Coast, we have a great uh, wine director, Robin Puricelli, and um, she designs our wine program and sells a lot of wine out on the floor. She's one of the only floor psalms here on the Central Coast, so she'll come up to your floor psalm. I love the abbreviations. Yeah. How about floor sommelier? Floor sommelier. Yes, thank you. Yeah. I'm a floor psalm. I'm a floor psalm. Sorry. It's like a, I guess it's kind of an industry industry I term. Yeah. I know. I got it. Yeah. But this place gets really hot during the savor of the Central Coast because everybody's doing it, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, actually, one of our most popular selling Pinots, of course, is uh, Chamisol, which is one of our partnership wineries. So um, we do a lot of great work. We do a lot of uh, wine referral to Chamisol. Um, we have their crew out here every so often to uh, check out Lido. Um, and then we also are a uh, caterer for them. If you ever want to do an event out at Chamisol, we'll come cook the food. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.